what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now, from the beginning. Welcome to BS, Beyond Stereotypes, a podcast about lawyers using their authentic voices to change the world. Think differently and embrace change. Think differently and embrace change. It's just been kind of one of my talking points for a long time because, you know, outside the box is where many people, particularly first generation people like myself, have had to live. Because if you're inside the box, arguably you don't exist. (laughs) There's no roadmap for you. There's no path. You know, uh, in many cases, unless you begin to carve and cut out a path. Welcome to BS Beyond Stereotypes. I'm your host, Merle Vaughn. Here to BS with me today is Daryl Miller, whose story I find fascinating and who will no doubt inspire all of you to embrace your authenticity. Hey, Daryl, how are you? I'm doing wonderful, Merle. Thank you for having me. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. So let me just tell folks a little bit about you. Um, There's so much to tell, but I'm going to keep it. I'm going to keep it brief, right? Daryl is uh, a partner and the founding chair of the entertainment and sports law department at Fox Rothschild. Um, Congratulations are in order. He was recently, I think, reappointed as managing partner of the LA office, correct? I I feel like you've been that before. You're absolutely right. I I was the uh, managing partner before the current managing partner, and I was that for five years. And built out our current space. So you're absolutely right. I was, uh, I've done it uh, one time before, and this is my second time. Great. See, I've been stalking you for a while, Daryl. Daryl is from Cincinnati, uh, where he attended uh, uh, undergrad and studied musical theater and classical voice, uh, which I find fascinating. Um, And also, I believe, toured professionally uh, before attending Georgetown Law. Um, what did I miss? Well, that's that's a big, nice, wonderful summation, which is the one that's always a curveball for people because they always go from, how did you stop becoming an artist and now you're like a lawyer? <laughs> so no, you didn't miss a whole lot. Right, I was an artist uh, for a good part of my life and up until the day I walked into law school and I've been a lawyer um, uh, since the day I walked into law school. Interesting. And so I, I have to ask, because I have a, I have a da- daughter who was a, was a musical theater kid at Harvard Westlake and performed at the Fringe in Edinburgh. And, you know, I, I was that parent who was following her around when she was doing all those things. Um, and now she's a writer. So she stopped performing also. But how did how did it feel? to make that transition, was it easy or was it something that was hard for you to do? Well, definitely was not easy. Um, and it was interesting because I did it all secretly. You know, hmm. I did it all at the height of my performance career. I did it all after a world tour, you know, throughout India and Sri Lanka and Egypt and Europe. I, I kind of did it 
thinking about how could I leverage my success in the arts into something bigger and was just dreaming about the idea of, you know, not only doing something bigger, but generating money. So I would take more control of my destiny. Mm-hmm. And um, I was just this wide eyed kid, literally dreaming, uh, having a, found a bunch of success as a young performer. Um, and I quietly did it. So it was very, very hard because I didn't think you know, they don't condition you to believe that you can make that kind of transition in our society. Uh, and I didn't have any big cheerleaders because every time I would raise it to someone, they're going to they were basically say, you're going to do what? Right. <laughs> you're not going to continue. <laughs> you're not going to continue. So um, but it was hard nonetheless because it was something that, you know, was unforeseen. There were no lawyers in my family. It was you know, there was nobody pushing me into it. A lot of times people go, oh, you got to stop singing. You're not successful. You better pick a career. I literally uh, did it as a means to get a degree to, you know, be a more powerful person within the world of entertainment. So um, I just kind of like I self-imposed <laughs> a very hard, demanding uh, uh, challenge in my life. And I just overcame it. And it made me a monster I am because at the end of the day, you know, um, it was it was it was the essence of self-motivation uh, over for something that was truly, truly challenging. And so and I kind of skipped. I, I usually and that 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 is fascinating. So I, I need to know what the tour was, what what you were doing. But but I also want to know and I usually ask this first, you know, give us a little idea about your story, you know, kind of. People I talk to usually have some, there's something about how they were raised or who raised them or teachers or somebody who who saw something in them or or didn't that that uh, uh, caused them or allowed them to 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 uh, choose their path. What what is that for you? You know, I, I, that could be our whole podcast. So I'm going to try okay. to give you, <laughs> I'm, going to try, I'm going to try to give you the, what I call the Hollywood one minute version, because it truly is a lot of twists and turns and things. And um, there were some key people that I'll, I'll highlight, but um, I'll tell you a great driver of a lot of it, you know, in a very, very simple, simple way was just kind of faith. Um, and I was, you know, a very, driven kid, you know, around nine or 10 years old who got into the church with my, uh, through my grandmother and mom. And I just remember being in the choir and working really hard, being one of the mm-hmm. first kids tithing and just believing in faith and, and, and believing that ultimately, you know, faith, um, and just myself and faith and work and working diligently academically would all kind of lead to something. That's kind of all I had. I mean, in a nutshell, Coming from Cincinnati, I was I grew up in a blue collar, kind of very limited, you know, community, which is you know kind of your traditional community in the Midwest, where you live and die in a, within a three mile radius of your school, your church, and your place of work. And you know, still ninety percent of my family, or ninety five, let me be realistic, are pretty much there in that same cycle. I was in that cycle, uh, never dreamt about being outside of that cycle, and which is living my life. Mm-hmm. And so. Uh, living my life through the arts, as I said, I was kind of, uh, I grew up in the hotbed of the Midwestern R&B bands of the 70s. And right, so right. Uh, I was performing and doing that stuff. I grew up in church, you know, singing gospel music and doing that whole thing. And then at one point, um, d- 
deciding between junior high school and high school, I decided to go to the school for creative and performing arts. And I got into that school as a drummer. <laughs> I was a percussionist <laughs> wow. and, uh, and, and started a career and started a life and just had doors and my eyes opened in ways that I just never imagined. I was in a predominantly black neighborhood for a good part of my life up to the point I walked into that school. And then I walked into a school, a high school, where its model and its colors were black and white. And it was really a, a kind of experimental school funded by the Cincinnati public school system. But it was a specialty school, an experiment where they were pulling together kids based on their talent, not based on their geographical locations, not based on their you know, economic capacity, but based on their talent. So they had poor kids, rich kids, white kids, black kids, you know, uh, straight kids, gay kids, all kind of in this melting pot around nice. the achievement of arts. And I went in um, as a drummer uh, and came out as a singer. <laughs> and um, <laughs> after, you know, being trained to start singing, I ended up um, literally thinking I would just, you know, have a great high school experience. I escaped gangs, I escaped drugs, I escaped all the stereotypes that young African-American men even then were forced to deal with. Um, and I just thought I'd go to the factory line at Ford or mm. one of the kind of, you know, staff jobs that, you know, typically get, you can live a good life back then, you know, getting your standard job in the Midwest and, you know, living your life happily ever after. Uh, but the first person that, you know, kind of really made a change, I think was this school counselor, Gwen Fields. I never forget Miss Fields, who basically said, you know, young man, I know you've worked really hard and you've done all this other stuff, but do you know you can go to college? Wow. <laughs> and um, she, uh, African-American counselor, looking out, you know, picked me up and just said, you can go to college and I want you to think about these places. And, you know, you've done well enough where you should be thinking and she really opened my eyes to the idea of going to college. Nobody that I remember around me in college. My dad was a military guy of 30 years. I did have one uncle that went and did Procter & Gamble, but I wasn't really close to him, so I didn't really know his path. But, mm -hmm. you know, a, a, a counselor opened the door for me thinking beyond that. I ended up, you know, applying to multiple colleges and getting into one and going to the College Conservatory of Music, a very prestigious highly um, selective college, which is sort of like the Juilliard of the Midwest, if you will. And awesome. um, I got into there and in their musical theater program, which is how I was there. And I wanted to continue studying my classical voice because for me, having a well-trained voice meant I can sing everything from gospel to R&B, you know, nice. to classics, to musical theater, um, as opposed to just trying to only sing theater, which is really more caricature than, you know, having a good voice. So I did that, went on the college. Now I found myself in college and, you know, in my sophomore year of college, everybody's auditioning for summer jobs. So I joined the herd and I ended up landing a job um, uh, at the Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera in Heinz Hall in um, wow. Pittsburgh and wow. um, ended up doing like eight shows for the summer, making a salary and going wow. crazy and, you know, having a great time and coming back. And for the next three years, uh, from my sophomore, junior, and senior year, I spent my summers, and I think I ended up doing maybe 25, 26 shows um, uh, and, and, in Pittsburgh. The wow. last show I did, I'm graduating now, 
The last show I did was Guys and Dolls with Maureen McGovern and Tony Roberts. What? They take the show on the road, and I'm like, I'm on the road doing a show. And uh, that coincided with me graduating college in 85. And at the end of that show, everybody's saying, hey, what are you going to do? I want to go to Broadway. So we all moved to New York to go to, go to Broadway. You know? So what are you going to do now? You're not going to Disneyland. You're going to Broadway. I'm going to Broadway. And so I go to Broadway. I did everything from auditioning for Debbie Allen and the Broadway production of Carrie. I remember the, the horror movie that she turned right. into a musical. I auditioned for Bob Fosse's last musical called The Big Deal. Like, you know, I auditioned for, I did a one-man jazz opera off-Broadway, and I ended up landing, um, uh, landing a couple of tours. The first tour, one of my college professors wanted to go to the Soviet Union then. It had not, the curtain had not fallen. And he put together a group of people. I was invited, and we ended up taking a kind of a repertoire of American music, um, music you know, from standards to classics to musical theater, all over and performing throughout Moscow, Warsaw, Poland, and up in uh, St. Petersburg. So I got wow. to Russia. This again, my first time out of the country. Right? I'm standing in Russia, and and insanely now I'm like going, oh my god! <laughs> Remember this three mile radius that I can't even tell people like what it's like standing on the streets of Russia because, you know, we couldn't even fathom it, but I'm here doing it. And it just lit a flame. It lit a fire inside of me to want to do more. But when that was over, I went back to New York, continued to do my thing. And I ultimately performed uh, in or around New York and then um, got a second tour. Uh, Mm -hmm. They were auditioning for this tour that was going to be, co-funded and co-produced by the United States Cultural Affairs Department and the Minnesota Opera Company. Mm-hmm. Um, often the Cultural Affairs Department, and we do this to this day, I think it's just, I don't know if it, that, that division has been shut down, but at this point there's still a, a division within our U.S. government that kind of sends musical performers, usually a pianist or a flautist or a violinist or just one singer around the world to perform as a diplomat to improve the relations between the U.S. and various foreign countries. Interesting. Well, this particular year, led by the passion of the artistic director of the Minnesota Opera Company, they had a vision of taking a full-blown American musical abroad. And they wanted to say, not just take one person, not just take two, we want to take sets, costumes, lights, a full cast, and everything, and do a musical in a foreign territory uh, as a means of fostering relationship and engaging and fellowshipping, you know, around um, the arts. Mm-hmm. And and they auditioned in New York City, and I won a position in this play. Um, it was a musical, actually. And it was a musical called Once Upon a Mattress, the story of the princess and the pea. Carol Burnett starred in it on Broadway, if you know the piece right, at all. Right, right, <laughs> And right. we rehearsed and mounted it all in New York City, put it together in New York City, and had sets, costumes, lights, and we open up in Bombay, India, now Mumbai. Wow. We wow. go to Madras in the south. We go to Calcutta. We go to the capital, New Delhi. We go to the beautiful Bangalore with all its flowers. We then go down into Sri Lanka, right off of India, and, and perform in Ceylon, the capital. We go up into the hills of Kandy. And then it just, it just was this insanely crazy life experience. And I'll never forget standing 
uh, in Bombay, because I didn't even have to do the rest of the tour. It's just the fact that my little Cincinnati butt was standing <laughs> on the shores of Chow Petty Beach in Bombay, looking out at the sea and honestly just going, you know, dear Lord, if you got me this far, how far can you take me? Right, you know, right, if right. I'm doing this with just performing and, and, and doing this now. And again, we were this is my job. So I was paid a salary. I was flown business class. I'm here as a diplomat. It was like, how can I possibly parlay this into something that, you know, is as exciting for the rest of my life as it is in this moment? So um, let me ask you this. Let me yeah. ask you this. What did the folks back home think of all this? The, I was a star. Can you imagine this kid that you grew up with from this little black neighborhood who's now living and traveling and getting a call or getting a card or hearing that Daryl's in India? I mean, so I was literally um, championed and loved, I think, and okay. supported by all of my family uh, who and my friends who were just like, my God, I mean, the dream of performing and earning a living is what every artist really has. And so not only was I as a young man earning a living, I'm now internationally performing and touring in the process of that living. So it was it was really, truly just kind of this motivating thing that, you know, the more I did, the more I wanted to do uh, right. that just kept pushing me from the next thing to the level. Now, as I said, standing on that beach, looking out, thinking there's a harsh reality for every artist that I live and understand to this day. There's a harsh reality for the industry, which is inevitable, is that you're only as good as your last production, right? You're only mm -hmm. as good as your last performance. When it's over, it's over. And it all starts over again. Right. And, you know, we know that in the corporate world when the company is sold or when a company shuts down. But in the performance world, you know, when that show is over, you start all over again. And right. so fundamentally, you know, I did, you know, I was there was a practical side of me that said, you know, how can I prevent this from just starting all over again and waiting for people to hire me or to get me to do something? How can I be the initiator as opposed to the one mm -hmm. constantly waiting for someone else to decide some wonderful exotic thing? And I said, not only that, how can I make some money and put some of these things in motion? And I genuinely wanted to produce international cultural exchange productions like the one I was on. And I said, you know, that could be for the rest of my life. I could travel the world improving the relations between the arts. Um, so those were just kind of the seeds planted at that time. Um, and I thought about it, thought about it, thought about it, but I said, everybody would go, you know, artists don't go to school, you know, artists don't do this. You're just an artist. You're just an artist. So I secretly, after that tour came back to the U S continued to audition, um, landed a production, uh, of a revival of the musical carnival that was supposed to go to Broadway. We rehearsed and put that together at the Goodspeed Opera House in East Haddam, Connecticut. So I think still to this day, the oldest wooden opera house in America. I've heard of it, yeah. It, that's where Man of La Mancha started. Annie started. A bunch of beautiful um, uh, classical American musicals all started there. We were reviving Carnival and going to take it to Broadway. Well, again, I'm just living my life. But I think everybody's going to think I'm crazy. Everybody's going to think I'm a fool. So I secretly pursue my plan. Only two of my closest buddies knew what I was doing. And one to this day jokes with me and laughs with me because, you know, he distinctly remembers, and we joke about this all our, all the time, us sitting around the table in our little, you know, one by one apartment in New York City playing poker. And I keep going, hold guys for a second. I'll be right back. My application is printing out. I got to get this thing together. 
Well, you so, have to take the LSAT first. How yeah, absolutely. Well, so I'm in Carnival. I'm in the production at the Good Speed Opera House. And remember, I do all my rehearsal, and now we only perform for two hours a night. As the performances started, I was driving hour or so south down to New Haven, Connecticut, and mm-hmm. taking the Stanley Kaplan LSAT prep course. I took Stanley Kaplan. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. It was great. I was secretly taking this. I paid my own little money. This is all secret. People don't even know what it was. I researched it. I figured it out. I took Stanley Kaplan. And then I went at the end, as we closed the production, I think the week we were closing, I took the LSAT exam at Wellesley College, uh, right there in Connecticut. And uh, I took the course, I took the the, the exam and closed the book on the exam. The production closed. Then I went back to Manhattan and was waiting for the Broadway show to be picked up or my results to come back. And um, I ultimately got my results. And then the next phase was to apply to college and apply to law schools. And um, again, I think people would think I'm out of my mind, Um, you know, um, and I applied to 12 schools thinking I'll apply to schools that have to take me, (laughs) you know, Uh schools that may take me (laughs) and schools that probably will never take me, but I'm still applying to them. So I had my options from the University of Cincinnati Law School to Harvard you know, uh, uh, among the 12. And I applied to all 12 and uh, ended up getting into nine of those 12 schools. And uh, it was just, again, sort of like standing on those shores, having another door open and kind of going, what? Are you serious? Um, Georgetown Law Center in Washington, D.C. was not one of the 12. Mm. Georgetown Law Center, the dean of admissions, I remember reached out to me and said, we'd love for you. We've heard about you. We'd love for you to consider coming to Georgetown. Just please complete our application and submit it. We, we, we'd like you to consider us. And at that time, again, you know law school and you know the price of applications yeah. and you know all this other stuff. I blow my wad, blow my money. And I was like, I got nine offers in my head and you asking me to come to you? Why should I even do it? But I said, what the heck? I already got all the data in my computer. Let me just complete it. But I'll never forget, true, true, true story, Merle. The, on the application fee section, they basically say, you know, put in the fee. And if you mm-hmm. cannot afford the fee, give us a reason why. Mm-hmm. And uh, I completed the application. And I really was truly broke. I'm surviving in New York. I'm doing my thing. I'm not like rolling. I'm surviving in New York. And so what do I write on that application? To this day, I literally said my reason for not being able to pay the application fee is I am surviving in New York, period. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Shipped it off (laughs) and got admitted one of 16 in the fall class 1987 into Georgetown. So I had a 10th acceptance, you know, in that process, which is crazy. Well, you know, that's one of the things, you know, speaking of, you know, you're surviving in New York and and making it think about the juxtaposition of this story that you just told us. You are a star. You're traveling all over the world. This is like, the, you know, your dream and every other performance uh, person's dream. Right. To be able to do this. But then by the same token, you're just surviving. And, and that's what people don't see, I think, you know, and in your, in your current 
um, position where you represent all these performers and, you know, probably from cradle to grave, like from beginning to, you know, when they're kind of nobody to when they're they're great, you know, how how does that help you to be have had that experience and then be able to 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 help them understand what they should be doing with their career? Well, I think you have to totally appreciate to have stood in the shoes, to have walked the walk, to have been in the very position that an artist find themselves in. And often a business person who's never really done it, you know, maybe did it a couple of times in high school and then went off to political science or economics and then got the law degree. But to have actually stood around and been part of productions and been part of shows and been part of those various things. And, and again, said the life cycle of you know, I'm in Russia, now you're unemployed. I'm in India, now you're unemployed. Right, I'm on right. Broadway, and now you're unemployed. <laughs> right. You know, to have that as the kind of foundation of who I, you know, was at the time is, I couldn't have thought of a better education for being an advocate for artists or being an advocate in the world of the arts where things are just by their very nature you know, on a very short cycle, right? A movie lasts a short window. A television series, if you're lucky, you know, lasts a few seasons. And the records last until the next artist releases there. So it has been um, uh, very instrumental in how I work with um, people and how I work with companies and how I just approach the business in general because I, you know, I, you know, I still, I understand the cycle, the cyclical nature of how it all works. Um, I also really appreciate the dynamics of the artist mentality when they're confronted often with the business issues mm -hmm. and the artist doesn't have the appreciation for the business issues right? or the business mentality when they approach with the artist issues, when they, um, you know, they're looking for all this predictability you know, on the creative side, when, you know, and to be able to articulate to the business people, the essence of creativity in the arts is it's not as logical, you know, as right. your calculator and how you right. make exams. So there is a tremendous amount of faith. But to be able to articulate and to be in each room and convincingly talk the talk of the other has, I, you know, even going into law school, I thought would make me, uh, a, a, you know, a very uniquely and, and powerful advocate uh, for both sides. So do you miss it? Do you do you miss the stage? See, that's the $1,000 question I always get. Let me say this. I said I stopped professionally performing. I never said I stopped the stage. <laughs> so, oh, okay. Uh, okay. No, okay. so I, you know, so again, I don't go off. I'm not a professional singer. I'm not, don't do that stuff. And yes, I'm a full-fledged, you know, all the time work artist. But um, I had planned to go back and perform and I was ready to go back. My safeguard, no lie, honest to God truth was, if I fail at this, at least I can sing and dance. I'm going right back to the arts. But I never fail. I kept succeeding. The doors kept opening. And so, yes, through law school, I didn't do any of it. I was kind of terrified until I discovered kind of a singing group within law school. Um, when I got out, you know, I didn't do a whole lot. But I remember when I got married, um, I hired 22 pieces of the Hawaiian Symphony Orchestra and you know, had my high school buddy who was a big composer do an arrangement of Ness and Dorma. Wow. And I sang to my wife as she came down the aisle on a classical piece, oh, you know, music, you know, or I performed at different events or different weddings and things. And I, so I 
still perform and have an opportunity to kind of get out there and do things at times that are, you know, kind of fulfilling that creative desire to, to maintain my, my artistic side. But, you know, but no, I became, became a lawyer. I got, you know, really successful early on and it has not stopped. And, and again, success for me, you know, is a very, very different definition than I think, you know, it's kind of objectively driving around in fancy cars and having a lot of money. Success for me was, you know, just like in the arts, putting together a sustainable career and helping people and seeing those results and having fun and growing my business, you know, year after year. Wow. <laughs> so speaking of, uh, of recent uh, successes, um, I know, and, and I, I read this article, I didn't know anything about v Vanderpump and you don't have to talk about it if you don't want to, but I knew nothing about it. I saw where my daughter had like, you know, posted something on Twitter about it. Um, and then I read the article about your representation of one of the um, actresses. But what was struck me about what she said was that she knew you had her best interest at heart. You know, she, it was, it, it felt very like personal, like she knew she was going to be taken care of um, and, and that's got to feel really good. I would think, you know, I, I know in my business, when somebody tells me I changed their life or, mm -hmm. you know, or, or they, 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 I, I changed their kids' lives or, or something like that, or thank you so much, Ma, you know, I'm grateful. That means way more than the amount of money that I made on that transaction. And so, you know, you know, talk to me about that aspect of what you do. Well, first of all, I'm totally happy to talk about this because I am beyond humored by the idea <laughs> that I became more famous. At, I became more famous as a lawyer than I did as a performer. You're a, like, meme. Telling, You're a meme. You're a meme. I was telling one of my buddies, I was like, you know, one thing I did kind of like, do I regret giving up my arts? And I was singing. And I'd be, you know, I'd be one of these people performing in movies or something right now. And then I said, oh, my Lord, I became this meme. I've become this you know, high profile person. And now I've become this lawyer, which is probably more famous than 80 percent of my, my clients. So I laughed and, and, I and had a fun it. time. But but, you know, but fundamentally, again, the C's you now have heard about of who I am. That's I've prided myself and I've tried really, really hard to maintain a level of consistency and to build a reputation that, you know, the same guy that somebody knew in Ohio the same guy that someone you know, performed with in, on, on the shores of India, the same person that was, you know, trying to go to Broadway with Carnival production or, you know, picking up a, an admission to Georgetown at the Ansonia, you know, post office in, in, in Manhattan is the same guy who sits here today uh, doing all of this. And so for me, consistency has always been a core theme of my business. But my business model has always been having the back and genuinely having um, uh, a really fundamental position of trust and integrity with the people that entrust me with their careers. And that's, for me, the differentiator that I think about every day. I tell others to think about it every day. And, you know, again, think about this, Meryl. 
how many Cincinnati blue collar kids who happen to sing and dance can now become this big time lawyer, even getting a shot to represent people. So for me, I had to have something that was not like the other. I didn't have the Beverly Hills. I didn't have the big city. I didn't have the parents. I didn't have the friends. I didn't have a lot of stuff, but I had an insane work ethic. I had, you know, an amazing, you know, upbringing from the standpoint of just, you know, trying to do right. And I had this fire of what artists are always fearful of. You know, I'm talented. I can sing. I can perform. I can do all this stuff. And or, you know, I can build businesses, but I don't have anybody who fundamentally has my back. And so I wanted to fill that void. And anybody that's allowed me to touch their lives, if there's nothing else they got, they really um, I hope God, and, and that's why that statement was so powerful to me, because there was nothing I've really ever talked about. And, and Lala is one of the clients that, you know, I have done things for, and I just do them, and I don't talk about them. But to see that come out, you know, for her, and I talked with her after it, I was like, my God, you know, how, where, and why, and just, you know, just thank you for even saying that. She said, it was the easiest thing I did, because I really mean it, and that's who you are. Um, that just told me that the very cause-driven purpose of my practice and my life actually does get through. And that's probably why I have the business and, and that I have. But that's not by accident. It's it's intentional and it's by design. Uh, to have the backs and to have the um, uh, careers, the families, you know, the idea of kind of helping my clients build and sustain and grow and really feel like they've got somebody in their corner that's all I've ever tried to do throughout my uh, entire uh, professional career. That, that's, you know, I have goosebumps. Um, so, you know, this, this podcast is called Beyond Stereotypes. What, what stereotypes have you felt like, either personal, professional, entertainment, whatever, uh, you know, have you felt like you've had to overcome um, uh, or not uh, on your journey? Um, well, that's been a ton um, because, you know, at the, again, just everything that I have done, I think since the day I left and much of what I did uh, getting to this place in my life was defying the stereotypes, right? Defying, as I said early on, you know, the stereotype of, you know, uh, Midwestern African-American kid not being connected, not having the talent even to get into big schools, you know, the stereotype of, you know, um, being the angry black man. I remember mm-hmm. that was something that I, I, I actively have made sure. And one of the things I, I do is negotiate aggressively. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't shout. I don't scream. I don't pound tables. I try to win by preparation. I try to make sure people are, you know, being reasonable and can articulate their points. And if they can't, you lose. Now, I accept particularly in Hollywood, it ain't about how smart you are. It's about the leverage, the power. If you want right. what I got, young man, I don't care how smart you may be a thousand percent right. But if you want to do this job, you'll be underpaid, you'll be underappreciated and you'll take it. And sometimes you've got to accept that because that's the dynamic. But I've always loved the idea of never letting them see me get angry, never Mm -hmm. letting them see me sweat and being right up in their faces 
uh, and making convincing points and winning way more than losing for my clients. So stereotypes of who I am as an artist, stereotypes of what people perceive to be my skill set or limitations, the stereotype uh, is something that, you know, I think we I've lived with uh, of my entire existence. And, and everybody does. We kind of stereotype everybody. Right. You, right. You stereotype women. You, you, right. You stereotype the, you know, the, the executive that calls you. If they not look like you, you, you know, you stereotype and make assumptions about what they are and how they're going to treat you. Uh, and, um, you know, I think we all kind of deal with that. So I've had my share, but, um, I actually enjoyed bucking them. I, for many years, uh, even in my performances, I would read an audition for, you know, seven foot tall <laughs> Caucasian, <laughs> you know, chorus man. And I'm, right. I'm still going to do it. I'm still right. going to do the audition. I come back out and I go, well, how did you guys hire a five foot five African-American? <laughs> you know, right. because I just I have I just see it as other people's limitations. And I've always relished enjoyed the idea of busting stereotypes. That's that's awesome. So, I mean, do you feel like um, because you 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 did a wholesale change but do you think do you feel like there's room for for your clients to kind of do a little bit of both not like not like your client becomes a lawyer but say is it smart for an entertainment client to have their hand in a lot of different things because you know they're they're just at you know they just don't know where the next dollar's coming from well yes but i think you know that's a kind of a two-edged conversation. When I started out, it probably was smarter to kind of stick with one thing. If you're an actor, stay as an actor. If you're a writer, stay as a writer. If you're in movies, stay in movies. If you're a singer, stay in singer. That's kind of the world in which we all grew up, right? Much of our parents Mm -hmm. grew up and we were taught, go to school, get a job. (laughs) Go get a job, right? Right. And, but what we have now become, what society is today, is everything but what we were then. We are now in a society where the idea of kind of cross-selling, cross-promotion, you know, is the the flavor of the month, if you will. And, you know, and not only is it easier to think about being an actor, writer, producer, and director, it's actually required more than ever before. Again, in the old days when you can go to school and get a job, that was because that job took care of you, took care of your family. You were there for 30 years. You get to go watch and you retired. That was the cycle of American life. Today, with mergers and acquisitions happening faster <laughs> than the All days right. are blowing by, right? Today, There's like one company uh, now, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everything. So, to, today, as an artist, you know, where movies used to last for half a year. If I didn't catch Star Wars in January, I could catch the original Star Wars in June. It's still in the theater. Right. Today, movies are Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and the new one starts on Monday. Right. Right? Today, you know, in the old days, television series used to be 26, 28 weeks, and you you lived by it, and you had your summer, and you come back and start all over again with the next season. Today, this is one of the reasons we're about to see strikes, potentially, is that right. you got six episode orders, eight episodes orders. You're lucky if you get 10 in an initial order, and that might be the entire series. So artists are just not getting the kind of longevity in their jobs that they had previously. So today, if you're not prepared 
not just by accident. If you're not prepared by an intentional understanding of a business plan to make sure you're generating a sustainable life, you're not prepared to do multiple things to generate multiple streams of revenue. You're not even going to live the life that you could live, you know, 30, 20, 15 years ago, because the entire fabric of our industry and of our society has shifted from the kind of stability that we all knew and grew up on and that our you know, school system and society kind of told us to do. The other thing I discovered, Merle, is I wrote, I wrote a book around 2015 called The 16th Minute of Fame, an insider's guide <laughs> on how to sustain your 15 minutes. And what I did in, in, in preparing to release the book, I started studying wealth in America and just kind of researching characteristics of the wealthy people in America. Again, they're mm-hmm. like, right, we all want to be wealthy. I said, you know, you better start thinking about understanding some of the characteristics of these wealthy people. And it ain't just, you know, the bling bling that you see on TV. It's like, what are they doing? Who are they? Right. And I started reading a ton of books and doing a bunch of research. But one thing struck me so profoundly that it became kind of a core talking point in the book, which is I found that while most of society was telling us in Ohio and the rest of America to go to school and get a job. Mm-hmm. The real wealthy people in America were actually building multiple streams of revenue, and the job was only one component of the revenue that flew into their wealthy empire. So they had a job. They had a real estate portfolio. They yeah. had investments. And yeah. most, on average, the average wealthy person had seven streams of revenue flowing into their empire and many, many more streams flowing for, for lots of other wealthy people. But the average was something. And that just profoundly hit me over the head when we were trying to get that same level of wealth and that same level of stability out of a job. Well, <laughs> a and job. aren't they always also living below their means? Not always, right? Not necessarily always. It's, I mean, um, there was They're a not... wonderful book, the, the Millionaire Next Door, that talked about that. That's what I'm there talking another, about, yeah. yeah that there was another characteristic to show that many of them do live below their means, but what are their means, right? At right. the end of the day, if you're wealthy and you're a billionaire, you know, you could still live <laughs> you know, an insane life. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah, exactly. And so it's all relative and they don't teach you about the relativity of how it, you know, where you are and what you do. You make your first million. I tell people all the time, you know, you might be rolling, but you're probably hanging with people making five. So you right. still can't do what they could do. You make your most first five million. You really think you're rolling, but you probably hang with people that are making a billion and you still really can't do what they do. But we tend to, to try to do those things. Anyway, so yeah. I think you have to do multiple things today. You have to find ways to generate multiple streams of revenue. You have to find ways what I call leveraging of your brand, uh, the brand of your yeah. business, the brand of your, your talent. Uh, you have to do things differently because the environment and the industry, in particular the one in which I operate, but society in general, I mean, technology has completely obliterated the way things were done in so many industries uh, and entertainment has not been exempt from those changes. And I'm I'm glad you said the word different because, you know, that that's my philosophy. I mean, you know, that's why I even started this podcast was to 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 have successful people 
explain to folks that it's okay to be different and that actually different is good. Um, set yourself apart uh, and be who you are, be authentic. And, you know, and I, I, you know, not enough people understand. That's what you're talking about. Also about, you know, diversifying, you know, nobody's telling you exactly what they're doing. Um, but you can, I can, you, you can be guaranteed that if they're doing really well, they're thinking outside of the box. Yeah. And because it's really required, it's, it's really fundamentally different. You know, one of the other things I talked about in my book was, you know, and this is early on, I was kind of ahead and I rolled the digital revolution, but I was thinking, I saw the changes coming and I just said, you've got to think differently, which is a phrase I use a lot. Think differently and embrace change. Think differently and embrace change. Yeah. It's just been kind of one of my talking points for a long time because, you know, outside the box is where many people, particularly first generation people like myself, have had to live because if you're inside the box, arguably you don't exist. <laughs> right. There's no roadmap for you. There's no path, you know, uh, in many cases, unless you begin to carve and cut out a path. And from, you know, from the time I talked to, you know, uh, Miss Fields, the, this person who opened my eyes to a new path, you know, from the time I applied and, and, and tried to figure out how to get into schools to see if they would believe me enough to become a lawyer. And from the time I walked into Georgetown and then walked out of Georgetown with a degree and then passed the California bar on the first time and then got a, you know, my first one or two clients, you know, it's like, there's no path. There's no book that I could have read. There's no mentor I could have immediately had to say that that's how you do it. I just had to have the faith, you know, and the discipline and the uh, clarity of vision uh, to believe that it could happen. So let me ask you this, and and you know one of the other tenets of this this podcast is diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, talking almost directly to 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 folks of color about success, you know, and and this is kind of a two part. It, it it's what how do how do you intertwine diversity or or advocate for it in in your um in your uh job uh but also what role it seems to me there's been a role in kind of people who have been able to become insta famous or people who have been able to like do their own thing without having to beg somebody in the system to accept them um and that has played you know has has benefited folks of color to some point. Is that, am I onto something there or, or am I delusional? Uh, you're definitely not delusional, no matter what you say. And you cannot convince me of that and uh, <laughs> even think about that. You're absolutely onto something because again, the other thing that I pointed out long before it was popular is that the internet is a great equalizer. The internet and the ability to reach consumers without having to go to a gatekeeper of the mass marketer is a great equalizer. And if you understand how to use it, which kids from outside of Hollywood has figured out, which yeah. adults have figured out, which certain brands have figured out, that's what you're alluding to, is that people who have inherent creative skills and great ideas and, and, and kind of an entrepreneurial spirit, it used to be you could have all of that. 
But unless ABC decided to greenlight your show and put you on, you ain't going nowhere. Exactly. Unless, you know, Universal Music decided to put your record out, you can sing and dance all you want in the Midwest. You know, unless Mr. Movie Theater decided to put it up on the screen, on the one movie screen that everybody had to go see on the weekend, you didn't even have a shot. Right. But the Internet. And once we hit critical mass with the ability to have content communicated over the Internet in real time so as to not be disruptive, it changed the playing field. Yeah. Yeah. And, and has that changed how you've had to 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 do what you do at all? Oh, 100 percent. 100 percent. Absolutely. Because not only has it changed what I do, it changed how I give advice. Because while I've got clients who are crying about Warner Brothers or some major studio not hiring them in the next film and their whole existence is measured by whether or not they get that big next studio film, what I'm going is, do you realize what your celebrity is outside of a Warner Brothers, outside of a studio system? Why don't we do something over here smaller, but you mm -hmm. own it and right. we put it out and monetize it and make some money while you're waiting for them to make that next film? So... Amen. One for them, <laughs> one for us, one for them, one for us has been another component of my business models for the clients. If you hit certain level of critical mass, hasn't Miss Lala Kent shown you, did she wait for Mattel or somebody, some clothier to come to her and go, let's put send it to Daryl on something and die to put it out and put it in the stores <laughs> and have it in magazines. That lady had sweatshirts on May, 24 yes. hours later and sold 100,000 in 24 hours. Wow. That's yep. the power of the internet. Yes, yes. Daryl, I mean, I could talk to you. I, I, First of all, I'm grinning ear to ear. You can't see it. I'm leaning into my microphone. I'm so excited. This is, is you know, I, I want to thank you so much. I'm, we're almost out of time here. I, I, I know you're a busy man, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. But I just want to ask you, like, one last, is there anything else that you want people to know about you or you want people to think about about them um, that that you want to want to um, uh, impart before we're done here. Um, well, we've covered a lot and you have pulled a lot out of me. But, you know, if there's one parting thought I would say and, and want people to take away from me, my experiences, my life, my motivation and my work is to truly believe uh, that they can do anything uh, and that preparation and work uh, beats smarts every day. And what I mean by that is through preparation and the work, if there's something you look and, and want and desire to achieve, you know, you have a far greater chance of achieving it you know, as, as opposed to believing just simply because you were not born at a certain status or you don't have a certain current intellectual capacity, you can't achieve it. Um, you really are the driver and the engine, you know, to the dreams that you want to make real. Wow. Wow. I, I, am, I am so appreciative of your being here to BS with me today, Daryl. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you for being here to BS with me today. Um, I think we I think that's a great note to end on. 
And so I want to say thank you to everyone for listening. And until the next episode, remember that everybody is different and different is good. Hit it. That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now, from the beginning. We hope you enjoyed the stories shared in today's episode of BS, Beyond Stereotypes. Join us next time when another authentic personality unleashes their uniqueness on the world.